Gerontological Society of America, meaningful lives as we age. Welcome to this GSA Momentum Discussion podcast addressing kickstarting brain health conversations with diverse older adults, a discussion with Dr. Carl Hill. Momentum discussions highlight topics experiencing great momentum in the field of gerontology. We're grateful to Genentech, Lilly, Azai, and Otska for their support of the GSA Care Toolkit for Brain Health in today's program. My name is Jen Pettis, and I'm the Director of Strategic Alliances at the Gerontological Society of America, and I'm delighted to serve as the host for today's Momentum Discussion. Joining me for the podcast episode is Dr. Carl V. Hill, Chief Diversity and Equity and Inclusion Officer at the Alzheimer's Association. We are recording this podcast episode of our Momentum Discussion in the podcast booth at GSA 2023 in Tampa, Florida. Dr. Hill, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here in Tampa and to join me for this podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Jen, for having me. I'm excited about today's discussion and conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, Dr. Hill, with its 2021 Alzheimer's Disease Facts and Figures resource, the association issued a special report examining race, ethnicity, and Alzheimer's in America. Before we delve into that report just a bit, can you share information about how the teams actually collected the data to inform the report? Oh, yeah, excellent question. And, you know, when we think about 2021, there was so much discussion and, you know, civil, you know, unrest, you know, around inequity and discrimination in this country. And so, you know, big kudos to the Alzheimer's Association leadership, uh, Harry Johns and uh, Dr. Joanne Pike and our uh, chief science officer, Dr. Maria Creo, you know, really championed an opportunity for us to, you know, understand a bit more about the influence of race, ethnicity on, you know, Alzheimer's in the United States. And so this data, you know, really is a product of, you know, people wanting to take an inclusive and equitable approach to what we know about Alzheimer's and and other dementia. And so, you know, the the survey, uh, two separate surveys, you know, one of uh, U.S. adults and and one of caregivers. And so the first one was a, a survey of almost 2,500 you know, U.S. adults, 18 and older. Uh, we work with NORC, NORC, at the University of Chicago to really uh, make this a nationally representative sample. And then the, the second one was a survey of caregivers. And so a survey of, of almost 1,400 uh, U.S. adults who were, at the time, or you know, recent, recent to that time, unpaid caregivers uh, for an adult relative or friend uh, aged 50 or older uh, experiencing problems with thinking. And so, you know, important to note also for both surveys, uh, differences, you know, noted in the report between racial and ethnic groups were tested and found to be statistically significant at the, uh, at the 0.05 level. And that's, that's really important for researchers because we're always asking, you know, whether these differences are real, right? And so uh, there was some rigor, and we really took the time to ensure that the results that we found were generalizable and uh, nationally representative. Great. And so what did the association find with the disparities, particularly gender, racial, and ethnic disparities in Alzheimer's in prevalence, and also what factors may be driving those did the Alzheimer's Association discover? Well, you know, the the Alzheimer's Association Facts and Figures uh, annual report, it was one of the first publications to note a disparity in Alzheimer's with uh, black African-Americans being two times uh, more likely than older whites to be diagnosed and um, uh, Hispanic Latino 
Americans being uh, one and a half times more likely. And so, you know, you know, during my time at the National Institute on Aging, that was always a great resource for the ways that we were able to, to think about many of the, the, the pathways and the, the determinants and factors that create and sustain this particular disparity. You know, for this special report, for this landmark special report, I say it again because, you know, this was the first report to outline data on race, ethnicity, and Alzheimer's in America. So it was a landmark report. And, um, you know, we found some, some really interesting results. You know, first, people of diverse backgrounds or people of color want healthcare professionals who understand their unique experiences and backgrounds. But, you know, many doubt that they would have access to culturally competent providers. And that, that's really important in this era of treatment, specifically a overwhelmingly majority of you know, non-white Americans in this report say that it's important for Alzheimer's and dementia care providers to understand their ethnic or uh, racial background and experiences. And this included Native Americans, Black African Americans, Hispanic Latinos, and Asian Americans. But fewer than half of Black African Americans and Native Americans felt confident that there would be access to providers who were culturally competent. And so this is really, really intriguing. And then another finding that I thought, you know, and really, you know, is a, is a call to action is that black African-Americans lack trust in research clinical trials. And half of the respondents in this special report doubt that advances in Alzheimer's treatments would be shared equally, right? And so, you know, again, I just think, you know, you know this data is certainly is, a, is an opportunity for researchers who are listening to uh, take a look at that special report and craft additional studies to delve a bit deeper into uh, some of these differences, disparities, and opportunities to understand we might call minority health, right? And then, and then there's, you know, real opportunity for those of us that are working in equity in communities to take this information and um, to address stigma, you know, to give people resources, to give them confidence in uh, accessing treatments, to give them confidence in knowing that they do belong in the healthcare setting. And then fourth, certainly, is providing some education and awareness to providers, which I think is a real opportunity for all of us working uh, in this field. Let's talk about that a bit more, Carl. When you uh, consider the critical first step of a provider having a brain health conversation with an individual, how can what steps can they take right now to help increase their cultural competence in order to kickstart those conversations? And what resources does the association have that can support them? I tell you, Jen, there are so many resources that the Alzheimer's Association has on its website, alz.org, for clinicians, for effective communication you know, as a caregiver, as a clinician. There's work that we're doing in that space from a national perspective, but I tend to think that much of this work is local. You know, yeah. and, and being sure that, you know, as a provider, as a researcher, as anyone working in this space, that we remain connected to community, right? And so what makes, you know, gives me excitement every day about, uh, you know, continuing to lead the Alzheimer's Association's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts is our infrastructure across the country and communities with 75 chapters, you know, looking to partner with national organizations that have a footprint in many of these uh, communities that advocate for 
many populations in this community, in these communities. And so, you know, being connected in these communities is so is so important. So if I have to, if I had a chance to talk to many clinicians, it would certainly, you know, be to engage the latest, you know, culturally competent, and maybe not just competence, but, uh, you know, being sure that, you know, we're, you know, they're approaching their patient population with humility, you know, listening, because one of the, the top reasons that we found in the 2021 special report for this, you know, lack of, of belonging, this, this belief that clinicians were not providing culturally competent care was because these patients felt like they weren't being heard, right? So listening is humility, having the, you know, the, the uh, humility to, to take the time to make sure that, you know, people are being heard. That's, that's most important. But then knowing how to do that, I think, really links into community, being involved with, you know, our chapters across the country, uh, because our chapters are looking to partner with local organizations that represent, you know, community. And that may not always be a health-related organization. It could be the YMCA or a fraternity or sorority or, you know, a civic organization that, you know, is really popular in communities. But, you know, taking the time to engage and listen at a community level, I think, could have some real benefits to how these clinicians, dementia care specialists, neurologists, you know, geriatricians, engage with their patient population in a, in a broader sense. Great. So my local chapter is a great example of that. I'm in upstate New York, so we have the capital city of Albany, and we go all the way to the Canadian border. So we have very rural places as well. So we focus on rural populations. We focus on uh, Native Americans that live in a closer community. We have some Amish population. And so really uh, the person who works in our chapter has really began to become embedded in those communities to really support them and bring culturally appropriate treats and really learn from them uh, what their needs are and to meet those needs. So I can't say enough about that, the power of that local connection. So. That's, that, that's right, Jen. I, you, know, com, you, know, you know, one community is, is that community, you know, and, um, you know, we really have been informed by the community-based participatory research model, you know, mm-hmm. which was developed by Dr. Barbara Israel there at the University of Michigan and her colleagues, but really thinking of ways to build, you know, consortium of, you know, stakeholders that represent various organizations, various families, people who are really interested in a topic, right? And then this particular topic, I think, is getting people the resources that they need uh, to understand Alzheimer's and dementia. Now, we're in a place now where there are FDA-approved treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And so we have to be sure that everyone understands what they are, what they do, and, you know, when is the right time to access the treatments. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly important uh, in the context of this 2021 special report, you know, because if the people, uh, and, 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 I'm, and I'm saying, the, you know, the black African-Americans, Hispanic Latinos who we know, are disproportionately affected, more likely to have Alzheimer's, if they feel that they would be mistreated in the dementia care system, then they're less likely to access the treatments at the right time. And the right time in this space is at the malcognitive impairment phase of an unfortunate dementia journey, right? And so if a person, you know, misses that window, then these treatments, you know, will not be, uh, you know, for them. 
And so that's a health education, health awareness, community-based participatory research or engagement activity. And um, as I said, with our chapters around the country, I'm really excited about an opportunity to, to get that information out to communities in ways that they could best utilize it. You know, from our perspective, that's health equity. You know, Absolutely. Not, not an equal, everyone gets the same pamphlet or the same mailing, but thinking of, you know, strategic and creative ways to get that resource, that information out to, to people so that they can fully understand what these treatments are and how they can best utilize them. And I would say even the promotion of brain health, right, among these communities. So let's try to, to get ahead of where that disparity is in Alzheimer's prevalence, right? Let's start early and talk about brain health and, and try to move that from a prevention standpoint as well. Absolutely, Jim. So let's turn now and focus a bit on uh, risks, on, on doing uh, just what I was speaking about there, about risk reduction and how health disparities impact that risk. So, you know, what's, what's behind those disparities? So interesting, you know, because we know that there is a, uh, a genetic risk for Alzheimer's and, uh, you know, that, you know, one of the well-known gene that influence Alzheimer's risk is uh, the APOE gene. Right, and, but research has not shown that Black African Americans or, or Hispanic Latinos are, you know, overly represented in having that genetic risk. So it points to some other factors that could be at play, right? And you know, I've you know, committed, you know, much of my uh, research career and public health career to understand understanding what those risk, you know, categories can be, right? So if you're thinking about the NIA Health Disparities Research Framework which outlines factors in the environmental or sociocultural levels of analysis or the social determinants of health. You know, all of this is trying to understand, you know, how does context and environment, you know, play a role in, in uh, many of these uh, risk factors. And so what well, research is telling us about Alzheimer's and other dementia, and that's important, other dementia is really important, uh, is that what's good for the heart is good for the brain, right? And so, in understanding that, we have to first, under, you know, to, uh, you know, recognize that Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia, but there are other forms of dementia, including vascular uh, dementia and mixed dementia, is quite prevalent. Meaning that people can have uh, more than one type of, of dementia. So, in understanding, you know, all of this, we know that lifestyle is critical and very important. Maintaining cardiovascular health, you know, a healthy diet, you know, Mediterranean diet, which I always say, you know, something green on your plate most times you eat, right? And um, staying away from saturated fat and, um, and, and sugar, you know, and so you're really uh, being mindful of, of diet and adequate amounts of physical activity, you know, is, is really important. And then Staying cognitively engaged, you know, you know, really, really keeping the mind active is so important. And you know, the Alzheimer's Association is leading the U.S. Pointer, a study which has just concluded its data collection, and uh, you know, you should be hearing results from the U.S. Pointer trial. But it really is seeking to understand this recipe between staying cognitively engaged and healthy diet and physical activity, you know, what is that recipe for protecting, you know, brain health? So, so, so critical. Now, with that said, we know that lifestyle is important, 
But there's a context around, you know, whether people have adequate resources to engage in these healthy lifestyles for, for, you know, for very long periods of time. People need support. People need money. They need income. They need, they need uh, all kinds of resources to stay in this way of, of living, this healthy way of living. And so that also makes, you know, makes me think a, a bit about Arlene Geronimus's weathering hypotheses. And, and that hypothesis is very well known to aging researchers who may be listening, but you know this, this uh, you know you know proposition that people are facing chronic discrimination, structural racism over their life course, and uh, because of this, you know, unequal access to resources or unequal experiences with stress, you know, people are um, are accelerated in their aging, right? And so, you know, that hypothesis will be brand new to the. Alzheimer's and other dementia, you know, research space. But where we're headed with that is to, you know, fully understand, you know, what what these lifestyle factors are, and then adding a context to those factors, which I think the uh, weathering hypotheses would be a great lens to understand how people can can take these resources, how people can engage in a lifestyle that can uh, that can protect their their brain health over their life course. Great. So you've talked a lot about what individuals can do, how they can engage in their communities. But I know the association is working with a lot of community organizations across the country to drive brain health in diverse and underserved communities. Share some success stories with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Over the, the past uh, two years, I've been just had a wonderful time working with our team across the country that are doing just doing great work in diversity, equity, and inclusion at chapters, as you mentioned, Jen. Uh, and we have a home office team based uh, in Chicago, you know, really thinking of, uh, you know, national partners that will allow us to take, you know, some of the, for example, you know, the, the research that we, we, uh, we you know, the, the results that we, we learned from the U.S. Pointer Trial how do we translate that into information that people can use in communities, right? And so our best way of thinking of, of getting those resources to communities is through partnership, you know, working with organizations. And so, you know, one strategic partnership has been with uh, Garrett Davis Productions, where we all, you know, sat around a table just like this one and thought of a stage play that would help us get information into communities in, in an equitable way, in this case, in black African-American communities, information about the Alzheimer's Association, about the disparity that exists in, in Alzheimer's, uh, the resources that we provide, the importance of participating in a clinical trial or the experience of being a caregiver, all of this coming together in, a, in an edutainment format is what we, what we call it, which is, is certainly education, but it's entertaining. People shed a tear, and we certainly think that the way that we present that information, you know, you know, stays with people, and they they would be more likely to seek us out, you know, when there is a need for information about Alzheimer's and dementia. So that's been one, you know, really great strategic partnership. Another one has been with the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church, probably the largest uh, black church in the country and maybe in the world, you know, with with uh, churches all over communities in this country. And so our North Star has been uh, having our chapters work with churches in key places like Atlanta 
or Baltimore or Detroit so that we can, you know, really you know, tailor our information, the great, the wonderful information that the association has into a format, again, that's effective. Uh, so we've created a clergy guide in collaboration with the AME Church, uh, and we We've held three annual Purple Sundays, which, you know, in theory, all AME churches across the country are supposed to have information and content about Alzheimer's and dementia uh, during their Sunday Sunday service. And then we have a national webinar where we go over, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia one-on-one, the importance of uh, participating in clinical trials, the importance of engaging with the Alzheimer's Association. And so... Uh, that Purple Sunday has grown in attendance over the last three years, and we had uh, Maxine Waters, who's really been a, just a champion, a, a representative, representative from California, join us to talk about some of, some of the work that she's done with the association there in, in Los Angeles. So just some really great strategic partnerships. We're always looking for more uh, ways to get our resources into communities, and this is really based on this participatory model, knowing that we're all in this together, you know, but if we're all in this together, we've got to understand that people come to this devastating disease in different ways, and acknowledging that is our pursuit of health equity. Great. Well, thank you for all the work that you do at the association. Collectively, I'll say the, uh, all your colleagues there do such wonderful work. You mentioned the ALZ.org website, and I know there's also a 24-hour helpline. Do you want to mention that a little? Absolutely. Our helpline, 1-800-272-3900, 1-800-272-3900, where we have uh, just the, the greatest call center, you know, experts in Alzheimer's and dementia ready to field questions, uh, available every day, all day, 365 days a year uh, to field your questions. So please reach out to us, 1-800-272-3900 in multiple languages. So, you know, this is really one of the uh, the best resources that we have because we're able to, to field people's inquiries, their needs, uh, and then uh, locate them to a chapter or, you know, answer the question right there you know, during that phone call. So please don't hesitate to be in touch with the Alzheimer's Association, 1-800-272-3900. Great. And then we've talked a bit about clinical trials. Where can folks find out more about clinical trials that they might be able to participate in? Well, you know, certainly there is our website, uh, alz.org, and go on and, and look up Trial Match. It's a great resource to understand some of the... Uh, clinical trials that may be in your area or that may link to a, you know, an unfortunate diagnosis that, that a person may have received or a loved one may, may have received. But go on alz.org and uh, search trial match. Uh, it's, it's a matching service, like a dating service, but you get a chance to see the uh, clinical trials in your area. And participation is so important, Jen. Let me just say a word about that. You know, I, you know, I tell you this, this field has moved in, in such great directions with uh, treatments, but we need to know that the treatments are safe and effective. And, and that is the, the, you know, the broad public health scope. You know, so many, I think, uh, complex factors that relate to the underrepresentation of key populations in these trials. Uh, but again, we have to do the work in communities to make sure that people are aware 
of the trials, uh, that researchers are held accountable for equitable recruitment, right? And that funding sources are holding this entire enterprise accountable for more representative research that includes people, particularly the people who are most likely to have Alzheimer's and dementia in the clinical trials. So we've got work to do there, but certainly uh, we have the infrastructure and I, and I think the will to get it done. Great. Any last words for our listeners? Thanks so much for uh, all the, the interest that you have in Alzheimer's and dementia. Jen, thank you for this podcast and to GSA and to, to James Appleby and the leadership for really providing an opportunity for all of us, you know, to, to hear about the latest advances in, uh, in gerontological research and aging research, Alzheimer's research, because this really is a critical resource. Information is power, and this podcast is certainly powerful. Thank Great. You. Thank you so much, and thanks again for all you're doing. And to those listening to the podcast episode, again, we're coming to you from Tampa at GSA 2023, and we're really glad that you took the time to listen. Take care. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org, G-E-R-O-N.org.